Hello, and, and welcome to another episode of the Novum Insightful. Um, I'm here with uh, Konstantin Anisimov um, from CEX, um, um, which is a long-standing crypto exchange in this space and keen to dive into, into everything that makes it tick and his view on the market. So, Konstantin, uh, welcome to the Novum Insightful. For our listeners, what is CEX and how does it work? Hi, Toby. It's a pleasure to be here and thank you very much for the invitation. Um, we, as as you mentioned already, we are one of the longest standing cryptocurrency uh, companies in the world. Uh, we were established in 2013 and uh, to start with, the business uh, was primarily a retail-focused cryptocurrency exchange. Um, our CEO, Alexander Liskevich, actually goes way back in, in crypto uh, before the establishment of this business. Um, him and um, several of his business partners set up a, a very major mining uh, operation prior to this. And at, at one point, I believe they were the largest mining pool in the world of Bitcoin around around 2012-ish. Um, when CXIO was established in 2013, Alexander saw uh, an opportunity there that, that um, he could see how uh, the exchange and transactional spaces will be growing, ever growing uh, over a period of time, I guess. And... Um, as I said, we started off as a retail-focused exchange. However, over the course of the years, we've uh, um, we've grown into a whole ecosystem of uh, cryptocurrency-related uh, products and services, and we offer um, products such as staking, um, ability to generate passive yields on non-stakeable cryptocurrencies, uh, collateralized uh, cash loans, or essentially fiat loans with crypto as collateral. And, and many others, um, as well as a full-blown institutional um, suite of products within CXO Prime branch of um, the brand. No, amazing. So, so really, really fascinating. Um, and, and I think it's, um, it seems like uh, you, you've done a lot of work on that thing. And so where, what, how does the, the business of the exchange work in terms of the suite of products? What's, what's your, um, because I think, I think you're, you're not as well known as a sort of retail group. What, what, are you largely serving other exchanges or what's the? I wouldn't say so. No, we, we <laughs> largely serve retail customer yeah. base. So within the CXAO exchange, yeah. um, the main, um, the original product offering, I guess, um, our majority of our clientele are um, retail investors. Mm. And um, our geographies, our number one geography is the United States. And after that is yeah, UK, Canada, and the European Union. So those are the main um, regions that we are active in. Um, I guess one of the reasons why we're not as well known is because we haven't been very um, we haven't been very aggressive in the marketing approach uh, historically, and we've been growing organically, quite still growing very strongly. We're over 5 million users, registered users to date, mm. and we're growing at, at probably 30% plus a year um, user increase. 
So it, it's the business is doing very well. We're growing very fast. However, I agree with you that we should do more about uh, being well known in in wider circle of communities. I would say um, mm -hmm. uh, you would find that um, many who have been in the crypto uh, for longer than say three or four years would would know about us because we were we were there before Binance. Uh, we were as big as Coinbase back in the day. Um, but I guess one of the reasons why we haven't scaled as, say, as quickly as Binance and some of the other exchanges is uh, because we decided to be uh, regulated first and we decided to approach things as if we were regulated business quite early on. Uh, that impeded our growth back in the day uh, because nobody wants to uh, supply their KYC information, source of funds information and things like that. Uh, it obviously decreases the number of um, active users that you would have on the platform and it, it adds friction to the onboarding process. But at the same time, we could see that over a longer period of time, we would come out on top and we could see that this would be a, a winning strategy. And, and I would say we're reaping the benefits of this now with all of the uh, regulations and, and licenses, uh, license applications that we have going on around the world. Yeah, no, and that's that's fantastic. And and in terms of the sort of regulatory approach and and where where you've gone with that, sort of how 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 is that sitting? And and just you you're thinking you're one of the sort of leaders on in that field. I would say so. Yes, uh, we, for example, we are one of the very few exchanges in the world who have got uh, what's called money transmitter licenses across the majority of the United States of the states within the USA. Uh, we can operate with a license or a, a, a written permission from a regulator to operate within each state, apart from New York, the state of New York. And even there, we have had a bit license application going on for quite a while now, I believe over two years. So it, it's the way we approach this is it's a matter of time before we can operate across the whole of the USA. Um, we are in the process of the um, of getting the permanent uh, crypto registration with the FCA. We we haven't got a final response from the FCA, but uh, we're um, we're responding to every request from the FCA, and we are pretty confident that we can keep on doing so until they are uh, completely happy with uh, where we stand. Um, so, I'd say, as I mentioned previously. The business could see, uh, or the CEO of the business, Alexander Lutskevich, uh, could see that regulation is an inevitable part of crypto, and it's only a matter of time before uh, things will become standardized and regulated and controlled. So we've done many uh, of the changes that some businesses are scrambling to do right now or have been in the last year. We've done that, say, over the period of three or four years. So it's been a lot less painful for us to... Um, well, pretty much painless for us to adopt uh, the latest regulatory perimeter changes. Amazing. Um, and what, what do you feel is the biggest barrier to entry for people interested in crypto? Uh, people interested in, in sorry? In, in crypto generally. Oh, right. Um, are you talking about users or are you talking about business owners? Users already. I, I think still um, the flow is fairly cumbersome across all of the exchanges um, across DeFi, across CeFi, it doesn't really matter. Um, 
you obviously you can do things with non-custodial wallets and DeFi, which seem very uh, seamless and straightforward, where you don't supply KYC, where you don't have to answer questions. But then the issue is when you come to convert uh, whatever crypto you have in DeFi into fiat currencies, into your pounds and dollars, that is where all those questions will um, land on you. And uh, for somebody who's an, an unsophisticated investor, it probably would be even harder to answer the questions then. So my view is, um, I hope that we, as an industry, we come to a process which is a little bit simpler. And maybe there's a lot of initiatives in, in the industry about sharing KYC, about providing Oracle solutions, about gatekeeping access to various DeFi projects, uh, which all of that um, could create some sort of norm in the industry. Uh, it may be regulation. It may be uh, code-driven. I, I don't know what the what form and shape it will take, but I hope that the governments and and the businesses like ourselves are all are all working towards a form which is safe, but at the same time, uh, it's seamless and and easy to use for the ordinary investor. Um, so yes, I'd say it's still quite. It's not frictionless, the process, and that's that's the main problem. The actual, once you're in and you can make transactions, buy, sell, et cetera, I think that's the easy part. It, it's selecting where to open an account, um, opening the account, going through the KYC checks. Those are the most, um, the highest friction points in my mind. Yeah, and uh, fascinating. And then um, CEX obviously allows users to stake proof of stake currencies and um, rewards through that. Um, how how important do you think the change to proof of stake is for Ethereum and and I guess a shift across the industry from proof of work to proof of stake? This is a very interesting subject. I um, I listened to an interesting, fascinating podcast. I would say by the one of the people who wrote the proof of work algorithm. I, I cannot remember the name, unfortunately, but I, I thought the person was uh, extremely knowledgeable. And the arguments that that person was making was that unless you pay, uh, unless somebody has to pay for, for the work uh, or for, for the validation, then the actual, um, the actual act of validation it may not be as valuable and that may be that may make it more prone to errors and, and hacks and, and problems. So I think it remains to be seen. We, we've obviously seen proof of stake so far working. Um, will it be as good as the proof of work on, on in terms of reliability and safety? I think that is a problem which has remained to be seen. At the same time, I completely understand that um, we are with networks like Bitcoin, we're burning through a lot of energy for essentially no reason. Um, at the same time, again, this, the, the same people who claim that Bitcoin is, is taking up too much energy, they didn't have a problem with um, with mines and, and like extracting gold out of the ground, which would burn a lot more energy in reality. So if, if you compare the value of Bitcoin to value of other metals or other minerals, then it's it's actually a very efficient process, and you can utilize uh, green energy for that. In which case, there's nothing wrong with proof of work. Mm. Um, so it, it's I don't have a specific stance on which one is better. I think there's a different application for each one of the methods. And I if if I wanted my uh, to have hundred percent or as as high of a probability of certainty that my wealth will stay intact as 
things are now, I would probably vote for proof of work as a method to hold my my wealth. If if I wanted something which would give me frictionless transactions, fast operation, and uh, very low cost on on the blockchain, then proof of stake, especially with with the ability of of staking as well, and then the development of liquidity pools, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, on top of that, that acts as an ecosystem, and that is an innovation on its own. So that they both, I believe, both of the platforms and both of the approaches have a place for themselves. That's what I would say. Amazing. Um, and um, obviously, you, you've outlined how many um, U.S. states and um, you're, you're operating in, um, and, and you're now pursuing this FCA regulation and, and sort of are going to be active in many different geographies. Is, is there an issue? What's the sort of challenge you find in complying with so many different rules and regulations around the world? Oh, it's a huge challenge. And I think this is a, going back to your question about barriers to entry, if we now look at it from the point of view of entrepreneurs and innovation, this is a huge um, moat, I would say, mm-hmm. around around each businesses, which is on one hand great for us because once we're there, we've, we, we become entrenched and it's harder for newcomers to go in. But I also understand that that's in in sense, um, in a sense, reduces innovation. And that is always a balance between the regulation uh, protecting the financial ecosystem, protecting the, the investors, while at the same time not slowing down innovation too much. And, and what is happening right now in Europe, for example, is we have the fifth money laundering directive, uh, which each member state of the European Union has the right to um, apply in a different way, in their own way. <clears throat> And each registration is not passportized to any other member state, or it may or may not be passportized, it may or may not accept it. Uh, The whole system is rigged with uh, ambiguities, and that creates a huge number of inefficiencies. And that means that in order for a business to, say, operate across the whole of the EU, UK, US, and the wider world, you need very large amounts of capital to even start. And I think uh, this is one of the reasons why we're seeing the, the recent businesses that establish themselves themselves within the regulated perimeter, they tend to choose one geography and stick within that. And I don't think it's a matter of them wanting to, it's a matter of them realizing uh, that they would not be able to, where, say, if you've raised, a re, I don't know, a Series A or, or a seed round, you wouldn't have enough capital to actually attack Europe, UK, and US at the same time. It would it would be crazy. The regulation is not that different, but the application of that regulatory um, approach is very different, and there's a lot of bureaucracy around it, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, I think the main thing I'm looking for right now is that, that MICA regulation in the European Union that will that will bring clarity to the whole of the European zone. And that would make everybody's life way, way easier. Um, the next thing is some sort of clarification from, from the SEC or some other organization at the federal level in the US as to what the regulation should be. Because right now, each state can operate their own uh, regime, essentially. And like we, we need to report to um, 50 regulators within the US, essentially. 
which is even crazier than in the European Union. Um, the only difference is at least they have a license, whereas the European Union doesn't even have a license to registration to make it even more complicated. Uh, but all of those things hopefully should should um, um, eventually get focused into three or four regulatory regimes, which would be easily passportizable from one geography to another. They may be more burdensome to, um, to achieve, but at the same time, you would have access to a much wider market. And if, if I was now looking as an investor into this and I was speaking with a startup which had a great opportunity, that to me would mean a wider um, obtainable market, which means my investment is it's much easier for me to write that check as an investor. That means uh, more startups will get funding, which in turn means better and faster innovation. So um, whoever can work it out government-wise how to do that, I think will be in a very, very much in a winning position for fintech. Yeah, amazing, amazing. And and yeah, so and for for CX as a whole, it sounds like you're you're really taking on all three of those markets as well, right? So, so. Yes. That, that this is one of our unique uh, positioning tactics, I would say, uh, that we're approaching um, all of those markets at the same time. And uh, and I think very logically, uh, soon we will also go into um, Southeast Asia and, and those markets as well. Oh, which is great. So, so all of the hotspots for crypto nearly worldwide, right? <laughs> Unless it changes, of course, because crypto is very dynamic and you never know. Yeah. Um, Norway may become the next hotspot, we like, or any other country for yeah. that matter, right? Well, it's suddenly big, I think, across all of all of the geographies you mentioned, and Latin America as well. Of course, we've got even El Salvador, but um, has always been popular as well. But it's um, it's great. It's great. What? Where? Where do you? What? What are the things that are most exciting you in the crypto market at the moment? Um. I think in general, the, the pace of innovation and the fact that uh, the minute you learn something and you think, oh, I'm, I'm staying on top of the developments, three weeks goes by and then suddenly there's another 20 acronyms you have never heard of. Um, this is, in general, kind of in the longer term, this is one of the reasons why I'm in the area, why I'm personally um, I'm very interested in staying in crypto for the time being. It, it's one of the fastest developing industries I've, I've ever seen and uh, one of the most creative and innovative. Um, now, if we talk about what has happened, I I think DeFi and NFTs would be my my two topics of uh, um, personal interest. And then I don't think we have seen the innovation that's, well, sorry, the innovation has happened, but we've not seen the effects of that innovation yet in the wider communities. And um, it's very easy for the people who are in crypto to say, oh, DeFi is simple. We all know what liquidity pools are. But try speaking with the wider community, with the people who are not in touch with crypto. For them, that's still a completely alien subject. Um, and I, that's why I think it's, um, it is a very interesting concept, which hasn't yet found a wider use case. And that that creates a potential for that innovation to be utilized elsewhere. And I, I believe I've said this a couple of times with um, in in my whenever I was speaking or in podcasts. I, I 
I'm very interested to see with the um, with the CBDC central bank digital currencies as to which blockchain they would support, what technology they would support. Would they support something which you can build smart contracts on or um, any uh, logic on? Because if that is the case, you can essentially lift off the whole DeFi community, the whole DeFi innovation hub and fork it to a CDBC, which would allow you to create um, credit institutions, banks, um, various financial institutions directly on the blockchain, which is run by the government. And that the level of uh, innovation there would be, well, it would be a, a big step, right, for any government. Um, instead of instead of having hundreds of thousands of people working and doing mundane admin jobs, you could just make the whole thing efficient. Um, and I think the first thing people would say, well, what about the people's jobs? Would they lose their jobs? And um, I I had the um, back when I was at Cambridge, there was a, a professor of macroeconomics who made. A very interesting comment he said when he became a professor um, in 1960s, uh, end of 1960s, beginning of 1970s, he said that he had to walk his dogs, he had to take care of his child minding and, and all of these things. He said that you didn't have people who would do dog walking. They didn't exist. Whereas now things have moved on and there's AI, there's machine learning, etc. And yes, jobs are disappearing, but at the same time, the same people who would work in horrible factory environments and now walking the dogs in the park. And, mm. and they're probably being paid more than they would have been paid in, in, in the horrible environment, dangerous environment. So it, it's the idea that he shared was that over a period of time, yes, a lot of the jobs will disappear, but this will result in other jobs being created, which will aid uh, the whole society um, in general and, and, they will the jobs will mostly be about human interaction rather than uh, repetitive tasks and and kind of not not very interesting not very um healthy jobs i would say so that's that's an example of how cbdcs and defi could uh, potentially re revolutionize the governments uh, and the whole public sector and uh, i think i can't remember whose quote it was but anything that can be automated will be automated is is uh, yeah. sort of um is the sort of thing underlying that and the um yeah no 100% and i i and i see it the whole time right like like um if like essentially we're working in crypto and fintech and there are new new applications new use cases flourishing the whole time and it seems an utterly growth area and and gets rid of all the the friction that we dislike dealing with money right like i dislike so, dealing with anything to do with the banking system and and being held up and essentially mainnet ethereum and and <laughs> other other protocols just work much better right like it's yeah. sort of, a peer -to -peer so you don't system. have to interact with other players, right? It's just all in protocol. Yeah, that's, I mean, it's very, maybe very idealistic and naive. I think that's what the detractors of crypto feel. But I think like a perfect peer-to-peer -peer system with, with very limited friction and um, seems to work very well, generally. Yes, yes. I, I My stance is, though, and I completely agree with that, but I, I think yeah. the system doesn't have to be peer-to-peer. -peer. It could be centrally governed as well. 
Mm. Uh, so it could be, say, China may may spun out, and I don't know what their CBDC runs on. Uh, it's definitely centralized. It will be yeah. decentralized within the country, but it will have centralized ownership for sure because that's how the country is operated. Um, but there's there's things like um, and and it doesn't mean that it's a bad thing necessarily within China. They can still in, improve efficiencies. They can still settle um, settle some large transactions in between, say, uh, the African countries, the East and West African countries, the EUAE, um, India, and all of the areas that they're investing massive amounts of money and make sure that the uh, the currency they settle in is their currency rather than the US dollar. And then the government um, obviously benefits from that. And if everything goes works well, then the citizens of that government should also benefit, again, in an, in an idealistic world. Um, it, it's, in my mind, though, all of that makes even more sense in a democratic economy, where mm. if you if we take the UK, right, uh, you submit your taxes um, around up to 18 months after uh, you've actually incurred the charge, between 12 and 18 months. Uh, then the government takes some time to review those submissions. And then based on that, the, uh, the government and the Bank of England will be doing corrections to our monetary and fiscal policies. Well, anything they do is two years out of date. And if I, I'm an engineer, that's my first degree, and I've done control system designs. And I know that when you have a complicated system and you try and nudge it to, to do what's called a, a negative feedback loop, where you, you kind of keep everything in control, if you do that at the wrong time, you can have what's called positive feedback, where it will resonate into complete chaos. And the same nudge effect can result in the system staying stable or resonating and, and essentially exploding. And, and this is what we have when we do those interventions two years later. What is our um, certainty about the effectiveness of those. It's it's kind of theoretical, let's say, at the at, at the best. Now imagine the whole thing was running on blockchain and a tax was paid real time. Uh, the government could see, like something like COVID happens, you could see real time which businesses are suffering, which businesses are thriving. You could redistribute the tax um, the, the tax regime in such a way that the businesses who need help. I get taxed the least, and the ones who are thriving essentially subsidize the other businesses. And, and you can change this weekly very, 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 very elegantly and, and swiftly. Um, I think this is where the democratic economies can have a chance to be as efficient as centrally governed economies uh, while keeping the democratic um, principles in play. And that, for me, is one of the exciting things behind, behind concepts like DeFi. No, very exciting times and um, uh, always good to catch up with um, the team at CEX, Constantin. So, so thank you um, for the interview um, and welcome to the Novum Insightful um, and looking forward to having you back again another time. So. Thanks, Toby. It's been my pleasure. <laughs>